Hello and welcome to the On-Call Consults in Less Than 10 Minutes series on ENT in a Nutshell, a compliment to Hedmere's online survival guide. I'm your host, Will Dittar, and today we are joined by Dr. Scott Bevins, a board-certified facial plastic surgeon. In this episode, we will cover mandible fractures. Let's jump right in. Mandible fractures are commonly classified according to the anatomic location of the fracture and are managed with the goal of reducing long-term morbidity from these injuries, which can include malocclusion, TMJ ankylosis, infection, nerve injuries, malunion or nonunion, and dental injuries. The initial exam should focus on airway status, followed by exam of the overlying soft tissue with documentation of the patient-reported occlusion and sensation in the distribution of the inferior alveolar nerve. Detailed intraoral exam and documentation is crucial due to the surgical and management implications of the patient's dentition status. Dr. Bevins, what are the initial important considerations in mandible fractures? Yeah, of course, we want to make sure the ABCs and other injuries have been addressed, uh, but primarily, we also want a good history, so the timing and mechanism of the injury, any patient-reported malocclusion or facial numbness, including their past medical, surgical history, personal or family histories, problems with anesthesia, uh, pay, pay close attention to the social history, any concern for alcoholism or drug use, as well as the timing of their last meal if we're planning for surgery in the near term. And what are the key supplies that you bring to these consults? We always want our appropriate PPE, so a mask, eye protection, gloves, etc. Take a headlight and an otoscope, as well as tongue depressors, and consider bringing a flexible endoscope with you. And can you briefly describe how you determine the occlusion status? Yeah, all of the components of the intraoral exam, I really start with the maxillary teeth. So we talk about angles classification. Angles class one is uh, the relationship of the mesial buccal cusp. So that's the anterior lateral cusp of the maxillary first molar. And it should interdigitate with the buccal groove of the mandibular first molar. Class two occlusion is when the maxilla is forward. So that mesial buccal cusp of the maxillary first molar is anterior to the buccal groove. And class three is the opposite. The maxilla is posterior. Be also careful to look for areas of early dental contact, which can cause an open bite or mandibular drift while opening. Um, Finally, make sure you document any crossbite. So that's when the maxillary molars are inside of the mandibular molars on either side. And can you explain the universal dental numbering system? Yeah. Here again, we'll start with the maxilla. So tooth number one is the right maxillary third molar. And then it follows the maxillary arch to tooth number 16, which is the left maxillary third molar. Drops to the left mandibular third molar, so that's tooth number 17, and then wraps back around to finish on the right mandibular third molar as tooth number 32. Dr. Bevins, can you describe the evaluation of these patients? So we're going to do a full head and neck physical examination and obviously confirm there's no airway issue in the process. Make sure to look in the ear canals and then do a good intraoral exam stating any dentition or occlusion issues, as well as inspecting the floor of mouth for hematoma and any evidence of loose teeth. We need to document that the patient has intact mental nerve sensation or absent, as well as their facial nerve function. If we do an endoscopic airway exam, be careful also not only to do the airway evaluation, but see if there's a big septal spur that would make a nasotracheal intubation unfavorable on that side. We usually have some general lab evaluation, including a CBC and CMP, considering an anticoag panel if we're going to operate in the near term. From an imaging perspective, a non-contrast maxofacial CT, and that's usually fine cuts or one to three millimeter cuts, is preferred in most cases. It's uh, fast, it's highly sensitive, and it gives us the potential for 3D reconstructions, which I usually have to ask the CT scanner to get those, but they're very useful. You can also get Panorex films. They do show the alveolar ridge and dental details um, a little bit better, but uh, anymore, we don't use them um, to assess for uh, concomitant craniofacial trauma. 
and they don't show condylar malposition as well as a CT. If a patient lost consciousness and is missing teeth, um, you need to consider a chest x-ray to rule out a tooth aspiration. And can you describe how you determine the favorability of a mandible fracture? Yeah, in general, a favorable fracture is one in which the muscles of mastication are reducing or stabilizing the fracture. An unfavorable fracture, therefore, is distracted by the forces of mastication. Someone once taught me that unfavorable fractures stink. That is, neither the axial or sagittal plane, unfavorable fractures point towards the nose. I'm telling you this, and then I'll share with you that we're actually kind of getting away from describing these fractures in terms of favorability and unfavorability. I'd encourage you to use more descriptive terms such as the site of the fracture, uh, the degree of distraction, um, and or the degree of comminution of that mandibular fracture. And can you tell us a little bit about the general management considerations of fractures? Yeah. Uh, shameless plug here. The AOCMF surgical reference guide is really useful. I'd recommend you can download that to your phone. Uh, but in essence, the first step of, of addressing these fractures is to establish normal occlusion. And we do that through use of maximum mandibular fixation or MMF. We can uh, do that using eric arch bars, IMF screws, hybrid systems, or interdental fixation. Any loose teeth or alveolar fractures need to be stabilized, uh, but an arch bar alone can often do that for us. For some fractures, like an isolated subcondylar fracture, uh, MMF with rigid fixation for three to six weeks is sufficient for good healing. For most mandibular fractures, though, we now perform ORF, open reduction internal fixation. For anterior mandibular fractures, and that can include parasymphyseal, symphyseal, or body fractures, ORIF with a transoral approach using two mini plates, a superior tension band, um, and a compression plate inferiorly, um, is, uh, is the standard of care. If we can achieve bicortical fixation near the inferior border, that's ideal. Um, it often requires percutaneous access the further posteriorly we go. Even for angle fractures, if they're non-displaced, we can use a chompy plate, which is a single mini plate along the superior border along chompy's lines of osteosynthesis. Those patients may still require MMF postoperatively. Or it's common also for angle fractures to use two mini plates or a strut or ladder plate. For significantly displaced or basal trigone fractures near the angle, consider external approaches with an inferior border reconstruction plate. High ramus or subcondylar fractures in isolation, we can treat again with MMF for three to six weeks. But if an open repair is required or indicated, we can use either transoral endoscopic or external approaches. Those external approaches we discuss as preauricular or submandibular or even combined. Usually they have a component of a transparotid dissection, and so we need to consider facial nerve monitoring. There are some absolute indications for ORIF and subcondylar fractures. We call those the Kent and Zide criteria. Um, and, you know, they are a significantly open temporal mandibular joint with a foreign body or condylar displacement either into the EAC, the middle fossa, or laterally out of the capsule, uh, or generally our inability to achieve and maintain MMF. And what about the antimicrobial coverage for mandible fractures? What do you recommend? Well, any mandible fracture that communicates with the teeth is considered open, and so we probably need to cover those patients for oral flora with systemic antibiotics and oral topicals, something like chlorhexidine, to decrease the bacterial load. Generally, postoperative antibiotics are reserved for severe comminution, contamination, or dirty mechanisms such as a gunshot wound. And those, in those patients, we also consider tetanus prophylaxis for contaminated wounds. Can you tell us a little bit about the unique considerations uh, regarding pediatric and edentulous patients? For peds patients, we want to try to manage those closed if possible, both to avoid tooth bud damage, but then also balancing the risk of TMJ and colosis. Edentulous patients, uh, ask them if they have a denture. It'll both help in assessing their occlusion, but potentially also for aiding in maximum mandibular fixation. 
if we do perform ORAF in those patients, we use big plates and screws. And what disposition and instructions do you give these patients? If I'm operating or have some airway concern, I'm admitting them with continuous pulse ox. If I'm sending them home, I'll consider using an IV loop, which is a temporary stabilization to reduce the motion of the fracture and the pain associated with it. Initially, I send them home on a no-chew diet and have them, have, uh, have them use chlorhexidine rinses after each meal, place ice to the jaw 10 to 20 minutes while awake, and then provide them some analgesics. Thanks, Dr. Evans. So that concludes our episode on mandible fractures. Thanks for listening. 